We're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis this morning by looking at the first couple chapters and asking the question, what the role of women is in the early parts of the Bible. Some people might think that the Bible in particular, Genesis chapter 2 that is, and other scripture passages, is outdated. That what it has to say about men and women, about families, it needs some 21st century modern changes. Here at Embassy Church, we believe that all Scripture is profitable for every generation, every ethnicity, every culture, and although it may take different cultural applications, we're going to go into this text with the assumption that it has a lot of helpful things for us today here in the United States of America in 2016. I'm not sure if that's the assumption that you have coming into this sermon message, but I just want you to know that we're going to look at this not with the eyes of skepticism or trying to explain it away or feel like we need to apologize for what the Bible has to say. Rather, Here at this church, we've already established as members that we believe God's Word to be true and helpful and that even when it bucks up against the culture around us, this Word is good for us. It is helpful for us. And maybe when we misunderstand it or maybe when there's been bad teachings on different topics, clarity can be brought. But in general, I want to encourage you that God's Word is good. And what it has to say about women is extremely good. And so I hope you have an open mind this morning and that you will join us this morning in the journey through Scripture as we think about the issue of womanhood. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 18. The outline of this morning's message is going to go like this. We're going to look at what is not so good. Then we're going to look at what is very good. And then we're going to look at something that is the best. Not so good, very good. And then something that is very, very, very good. It's the best. Turn with me in page two of your Bible to Genesis chapter two, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Well, is it obvious already what is not so good? It is not good that the man who was formed earlier in chapter 2, if you turn your eyes up in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And God planted a garden, and then God placed the man in the garden. And if you drop down to verse 15, this is where we were looking at last week. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work and keep or to serve and protect and then commanded him not to eat of a certain tree in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 18 picks up and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Readers of Genesis 1 and 2 should see these words as striking, as maybe even startling, as quite a contrast from what we heard in chapter 1. 
If you're familiar with chapter 1 or you've been following along, you'll know that after every day of creation, except for day 2, strangely, but after every day of creation, day 1, God said it was good. And then day 3, it was good. And it was good, and it was good. And then finally, after day 6, the culmination of male and female, he says it was very good. All that God made was good, and then eventually, climactically, very good. So to now, before sin enters into the picture, before the fall of humanity and the curse effect of sin gets spread to all men and death enters the world, we have God himself saying, this is not good. Do you see the contrast between chapter 1? Good, 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 very good. Something in creation is incomplete. It is not good. Why? Well, we could read through Scripture and realize that this passage is referring primarily to the idea of man and woman in marriage. But before we think about marriage, I think it's important for us to realize that more than just marriage is being considered here when we see these words, not good. For example, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not having another person to lift him up again. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The context here I don't think is about marriage. So young fellas, single guys, don't think about this as your next new pickup line. Hey, ladies. If I'm all alone, I can't keep warm. (laughs) So two are better than one. I'm just trying to be biblical. It's not why I'm bringing that scripture up. I'm sharing this scripture because clearly throughout the Bible, it is not good for someone in the work that they do. Ecclesiastes says two can get a better reward for their toil. So the job Adam gives is given from God. He can do more and do it better if he has another person helping him. Similarly, we think of the idea of companionship and the idea that we were made to be in relationship with one another. This is a common idea. So before any of you think we should translate Genesis 2.18 as it is not good for man to be alone, that if you are a single man or a single woman, shame on you. It is not good. That's a terrible way to read this text. Marriage is a primary focus of this chapter, but if we turn our Bibles, and we won't do this today, but if you want to turn your Bibles or jot this down, read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read the whole thing, and you'll find that a single man named Paul is writing and saying, I wish you all were single like I am. And there is great good that a single man can do when he is fully focused on obeying the Lord. And in fact, A married man is a divided man. He has to care and please for his wife. And then all the men in the room say, amen. (laughs) And then it says, women, you're also, if you're married, a divided woman because you have to care and please for your husband. And they're like, oh, yes. But the idea is this. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Paul says that everyone is given a gift in whatever season that they are in. Some of you have the gift of singleness. You know how you know you have it? You are currently single. 
some of you have the gift of marriage. Do you know how you have that gift? You're currently married. I think that's the best way to understand 1 Corinthians 7, not as this mystical, okay, wait, do I have the gift? Am I going to be single the rest of my life? The scripture is plain. Read the whole chapter, and he says, look, whatever season of life that you find yourself in, you should seek to remain in that season unless there are some other factors that you should get out of it. So, if you're a single person, don't think that because you became a Christian that all of a sudden you need to get married. No, singleness is fine and good and has its purposes. And so too does marriage. And Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 7. So, Scripture in a patriarchal world promotes singleness. Why does the Bible need to be updated, modernized, this, my friends, is already countercultural enough. And we should find that the Bible, written even thousands of years ago, still has great relevance and help for you if you're single or if you're married. God points, though, to a problem in our text that something is not good. And I want us to look at the next few verses to see how he highlights this problem in verses 19 and 20 of Genesis 2. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So notice in verse 18, we have the problem presented, the not-so-good scenario, the incomplete creation of just one man by himself. And this is not good. But before immediately getting to the solution, he makes this not just stated, but personally felt by Adam himself. By asking him, as he cares for and has dominion over, to have naming rights over these animals, as he sees them. Here come the zebras. They have their own pair, male and female. But he doesn't. Here come the dogs and the cats, the elephants, the rhinoceros, who knows who's in the garden or in the land around him. But you get the idea. Each of them have their pair, and as he keeps going through this process, he's realizing, where's my pair? Where's my complementary person? So that's one thing that he's observing. The other thing is that none of these animals are fit to help him. None of them will succeed in providing a solution for this problem. And at this point, I wonder, are any of you really, really big animal lovers? Like, love your pets? I can remember feeling picked on or sad or feeling like nobody would play with me. But my dog would always lick me and wag his tail. And he was such a good listener. And I was so happy around him. My dog's name was Buddy, and he was my buddy. But isn't this scripture quite clear? No matter how heartfelt I was by my relationship with my dog, he was not a fit companion, not an ultimate companion. This is not the solution. Animals are not the solution to your 
loneliness. So I think that is actually a fair warning or word of application to some of us. I'm not trying to go all animal hater here. I just tried to tell you I loved my dog and found companionship with him. But friends, let's observe around us. I don't know if this is you or this is a sore spot. But at times, I think it's a little crazy how we treat animals sometimes. Like they're a part of the family and we spend a lot of money and time and cancer treatments and all kinds of things. I'm like, really? Maybe that's going too far. But it is clear in the text, isn't it? Animals were not meant to be our primary companion. So when I was delivering pizzas in college for Domino's, and there was this one house we went to regularly, I don't think that this woman ever got out of her house. She was called the cat lady because she had like all these cats. Like that was weird. And if that's all you ever exist is just around animals all the time with never getting out of the house, that's not a good sign. Companionship with other humans is a normal, healthy mark. Further applications I think that we could turn to are, are you proud to think that you can accomplish everything that God's asked you to on your own? Should you not maybe apply these words to different areas of your life? It is not good that you do this alone. Do you ever try and fight sin alone? And in secret. It's not good for man to be alone in his sin. Do you ever try and serve others by yourself and think that you're going to be their hero? It's not good for you to serve and help others alone. Do you ever think that I'm going to be the evangelist that's going to save the world? No, God has given the church plural corporately to be his witness to share the gospel. It's not all on your shoulders to spread the good news. We do this together as a church, and it is not good for you to be in alone or in isolation for your evangelism and service. God is a triune God and constantly and for eternity has lived in relationship with himself. Therefore, we reflect the image of God, as Genesis 1 says, male and female, in human companionship. So, I think one application you all should consider is, do you not just spend time with other humans, but do you spend time with other people that aren't like you? It's not good for you to be alone, but it's also not good for you to be around people that are just like you all the time, that have the same views as you, the same gender as you, the same ethnicity as you, the same age as you. I think this is one of the sad things we've seen in church the last few decades, this homogeneous unit principle, which means we're going to make the church about a certain demographic. We're going to have a young church, or we're going to have the old people traditional church, or we're going to have a church that's only for teens, or segregate the teens from the older people. I don't think that that's very healthy at all, friends. Here at Embassy, we want the church to be comprised of people from all over the world, from different ages, stages, ethnicities, that it is good for you to not spend time with people that are just like you. So sometimes we can isolate ourselves by ourselves, even with, uh, with other people, because we're just hanging around people that are just like us. I'd encourage you, think through your life. What are ways that you can grow in godliness, grow in wisdom by learning from the people around you, younger, older, richer, poorer, different life stages, moms, dads, grandparents? We need each other. 
And here as a church, we've tried to schedule our meetings and our life as a church so that you would be able to live in community. It's very easy for some of you to come to church, sing songs, listen to the message, and then just kind of say hi and leave. But here we're encouraging you, don't do that. At least that's not for your good. It is good for you to be in community with other people. So that's why every week we either have a breakfast downstairs before the service or lunch after the service. You can sit at a table and learn about other people in the church and what's going on in their lives. That's why we have Bible studies throughout the week. And that's why even if you're like an introverted person and big groups are not your thing, we just strongly encourage you to meet one-on-one with someone or a small group of people throughout the week. Make it normal part of your life to live in community throughout the week here at Embassy Church. Dinners together. Retreats on the weekend that happened with a few ladies this week. Intentional spiritual conversations and even informal hanging out conversations. And lastly, men, men of the church, it is not good for us to be alone, which means we need help. (laughs) No amens for that, ladies? Yes, the men need help. That's one of the main points of this text. Men, it is not good for us to be alone. Humble ourselves and listen to our wives. And even if you're not married, listen to other women around you. They will provide a perspective and have strengths that you will not have. So moving on to that point, we have seen and observed what is not good in this text. Let's see God's solution to what is very good. When male and female are created, Genesis 1 says, this is very good. So we turn now to verse 21 in chapter 2 and see that point explicitly. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. God's solution to the problem of man being alone is to create a woman And we see this specific language here is a helper, a helper fit for him, which immediately, I think, starts asking the question, man, helper, is that encouraging? Yeah, the Bible needs updated for sure, Pastor Phil. I'm not some little helper. I'm not daddy's little helper. That is the terrible way to think about this word. The only times this word ezer in the Hebrew is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Two contexts are being talked about. One is when a smaller nation needs military help, and so a helper or strength from other soldiers or army, they come and help. Does that seem like, oh, you're just daddy's little helper? Or does that provide a sense of strength and resources that something is lacking and this person completes and fills it up so that they are full? That's a different image, isn't it? The second image, when this word is used, most often it is used of Yahweh, of God himself being Israel's helper. So ladies, if for one second you're doubting or questioning the Bible and whether it is pro-men and anti-women, think for a moment that the Old Testament is saying that from the very beginning you were made 
to reflect the image of God by being a helper, by providing resources and strength and gifts and abilities that the man does not have, that he cannot accomplish his purposes without woman's help. Go woman, right? That's the idea that you should have when you think about this point. Helper is not demeaning. It is not saying that you're inferior. But on the other hand, feminists have said, well, if the relationship here is that we are one of military strength and we are similar likeness to God, well, then maybe we're actually superior to God. And that, my friends, is not true either. We should not take the feminist agenda. We should find biblical balance. Women are equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth before God with male and female. We should also realize that the woman's role is extremely important and necessary and creates a creation that is very good with her in it. And without it, it is not good. That should affirm the woman, help her feel pride and a sense of esteem about who God has made her. Not pride in herself, but who God has made her to be. Furthermore, we should realize that all through the Scripture, especially in these passages, we see that men are given the role of headship, leadership. One of their roles is to protect and care for the women. If you weren't here last week, then you can go back on our website and hear the whole message on the role of men. But it'd be helpful for us to make sure we realize as we affirm the goodness of women and the gifts of women to help men, we should make sure that we realize that part of their helping is going to involve submitting themselves to the leadership of men, both in the home and in the church. Did you notice that our passage says that in verse 19 that the man named every animal? Do a study in the Old Testament about naming and names in the Bible. The conclusion that I've come to is that it's a big deal. If you have naming rights over something, that is a sense of authority over the other thing that you're naming. Similar to nobody has the right to name your kids something else. You have that right. They're yours. You're in charge of them. Nobody has any other say about what you name your kids. They may not like it. They may think it's weird. That's a strange... But that doesn't matter. It's your kid. All through the Old and New Testament, you see God changing names to people when he's going to make them a new thing. Abram to Abraham. Saul to Paul. Even Jesus himself is not given a name by Mary and Joseph, but through the angel, through the Holy Spirit. Who names who is kind of a big deal. So if we read through the Bible, this idea of naming, and we see right here in chapter 2 that Adam has authority over the animals. That's obvious. He names all of them. But notice he is the one who calls her woman. Now there's a play on words here that you wouldn't see, but you can sort of see. Why do we have man and then woman? Because in the Hebrew, it's ish and then isha. And they're same kind of play on words off of one another. And I think part of the reason for that is that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when it talks about the man being made from the dust of the ground, it says that the man, Adam, was made from the Adamah. So there's a play on words with both how Adam was made and the way the woman was made. That the name that they get, the, the man and the woman, come from who they were from. So the ground, the Adamah, made the Adam. And from the man came the woman, or the ish and the isha. 
Furthermore, look down in chapter 3, verse 20. The man called the wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living thing. So, whether it's woman or specifically calling the wife Eve, you see that the man has naming authority over her. The scripture reading that Eddie read earlier showed in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that because the man was made first and then the woman, that God's roles in creation is that the man would lead and that the woman would submit and help in that leadership and make him a better person because of it. So read 1 Timothy 2 later today. It's noted in your bulletin. You'll notice that the way the New Testament is reading Genesis is to say that there is priority in who was made first versus who was made second with male and female. Furthermore, you could jot down in your notes or in your head, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the very same point is made by Paul when he says that man was made for God, but woman was made for man. What Paul is doing, I believe, is just meditating and applying these verses here in Genesis 2 and saying that woman was made to be the helper of man. This doesn't make her inferior. This doesn't make her of any less value or dignity. It means that she has a specific role in the same way that the man has a specific role. And therefore, they should obey those roles. Finally, you could not jot down Ephesians chapter 5 where it talks about this passage also. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, and Ephesians 5 all address this issue of Genesis 2 and 3. And all of them make the same point. That men have leadership in the home and in the church. And that because of that, they should be head, head over the woman and head of the church. Just as Christ is head of the church, so should men be head of the home and leaders in the church. I want you to think of head. It's what the word literally means, a source of something. So if you want a word picture, what does head mean? That man is the head. So think of a river and that the river has the source of multiple rivers going down. That was the way the word was used. So the source of many waters has a starting point. So what the scriptures are saying is that the starting point of woman comes from man, and out of man comes all the other people, including woman. Furthermore, you should understand head also has the connotation in the same way that the word author in English. If I write a song and we sing it on Sunday morning, who is the author of that song? Me. Who is then the authority, there's the word being having a double meaning and usage, who has the authority of what the song means? If you're like, well, I kind of think that song means this. And I'm like, no, I wrote the song. I know what the song means. This is what I intended for that song to mean. So when I wrote it, I'm the author of it. And by being the author of it, I am the one that determines its meaning. Furthermore, God as ultimate authority has made head man, head over woman, and the source to have authority over her. And as we talked about in great length last week, not to domineer, not to rule and be a dictator, but to be a servant leader who lays down his life like Jesus did. So, let's make sure that when we think through this idea of helper, we don't go to either extreme. Is woman superior to man because she's a helper like God is a helper? Well, of course not. Scriptures make it quite clear, both in Genesis 2 and 3 and throughout the whole Bible, that men are to lead women in their priestly function and role. But on the other side, we should not start saying, 
well, women, you're just our little servant girls. You need to do whatever we tell you to. That's crazy talk too. So, one of the things we should be asking is, how? How do women help men? Well, one thing that's quite obvious in the text, probably one of the primary things that the text is trying to say, is in his task to be fruitful. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. When the curse to the woman comes, you'll notice that the role that God gave her is being implied here by the curse that is given to her. Verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. First and foremost, we see that God curses the woman's fruitfulness of having children. In verse 20, we saw that Adam named Eve, Eve, because she is the mother of all living things, very much wrapped up in who it is that God is making as a helper, is a person who is fit to be fruitful with him. So even though we've already made the case that it's okay for a woman to be single, that she is not in any way lesser of a woman if she never has children, or that that is in any way demeaning, or, well, God's plan is for you to have children, and you don't have children. What's wrong with you? No, no, no. But generally speaking, primarily this text is talking about how God put man and woman together for the purpose of marriage, as we'll see next week, and for the purpose of procreation, so that they can do the task that God gave them to be fruitful and multiply. So, therefore, we should see that women are to help men in being fruitful. The other thing that you should see is chapter 1 says that male and female are made in the image of God. So if you go back a few weeks ago, image bearers are princesses. That means you are also co-rulers with Adam in the garden. The woman is. So therefore, the ruling and dominion task is given to single women and married women, and they are to help men in whatever strengths and abilities and perspectives that they're going to have, knowing that women were made differently biologically they were made differently, psychologically it seems like, and I'm not saying I figure out women, but it seems like they think differently than men do. And as we make those observations, we realize that those perspectives are good for us men. I can't tell you how many times I have learned from my wife because she has provided the much-needed perspective that I was missing. And so that should continue all through our lives as men, whether we're married or single. Listen to the perspective of the women in this church. Listen to the perspective of your wife. And normally she's right. Even though it might be hard to admit it or believe it, a godly wife isn't just trying to nag and tear you down, but try and build you up. That is what God made her to do. I want you to think about this picture, women and men. Before I became a pastor, I wanted to be a coach. And I did a lot of coaching before I officially did become a pastor. I'm not trying to say, women, you are coaches. What I am trying to illustrate is that while I was coaching, I learned a lesson. I would sometimes coach little kids, and then eventually I coached a high school team. And both little kids and high school teams, when I played basketball, I would think, man, you know, if I just played... I would dominate, and we would win. Like the little kids. Could you imagine, like me just like 
blocking all of them and just kind of posterizing and just doing all. Man, I would score 100 points every game. Why don't I just play? I kept thinking that. There was this struggle within me. I just wanted to play. I, want, I knew we would win if I played. A teacher or coach is better than the people that they are teaching or coaching in certain areas. There's gifts and strengths and things that they have that the other person that they're teaching or coaching doesn't have. A good coach or a good teacher does not domineer over them and say, I'll just take your test for you, student. You know, you're struggling here, and I will help you by taking that assignment, writing the paper for you, and giving you 100. That doesn't help him. That does not help her. In the same way, then, think of that idea and think about your role, women. Your role is to come alongside or even underneath, but not in an inferior, oh, I'm the little servant girl, but because you know that you have something that the man lacks, both biologically, both spiritually, emotionally. Your perspective is helpful and needed. So you could domineer over and just be like, I'm just going to take care of this. I'm just going to do it. Or... You could intimately, closely, gently, lovingly come alongside a man in the church, come alongside a husband, and be a helper. You see, it takes a lot of humility to say, even though you know what's right in this situation, to come underneath to make sure you don't domineer over, to make sure you don't push him away, but by servant-like say, I want to serve you and help you. Do you see what that looks like? If you turn back to chapter 3, verse 16, you see the other side of the curse, which is why I believe this point is so clear in the text. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Do you see how one of the very important things that God was giving man was a relational helper? And the curse then shows the correspondence to that relationship is now fractured. It is now cursed. It was not meant to be like that. The word desire, if you read over in the next chapter, is the same word used when Cain and Abel, and it says sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you in chapter 4, verse 7. Same word, same idea. But you should rule over it. To understand what's going on in verse 16 of chapter 3, we need to compare chapter 4, verse 7 and see that in the same way that sin is overbearingly desiring Cain in that chapter. In the same way, women will want to just overrun her husband. And she's like, I'm, I know the right thing to do here, and so I'm just going to do it anyway. That does not help him. In the same way that it doesn't help me to step out on the basketball court and be like, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just play for you guys. You guys sit on the bench. It'll be me against all these other five little kids. That's silliness. And women, that's what happens when in our sin, we choose to usurp the plans of God, go over men and not come beside them or underneath them and say, I want to help you here like a teacher sits down next to the student and says, let me teach you how to do this better. Let me help you. Let me provide a sense of perspective here and encourage you because I love you. I don't know what you think is harder. The man, as I said last week, men, We do not have an easy job here. We have to lay down our life like the Christ laid down his life for the church. That's a a tough calling. But some of you women are listening to this like, well, Pastor Phil, this is no easy calling either. I have to submit 
and come underneath of this sinful man sitting next to me today? What? Both of us in our callings must die to ourselves. Both of us must die as we serve and as we encourage the spouse and the men and women that God has given us. I don't know if that sounds about right to some of you. And you're like, yeah, it feels like dying. But it should feel that way because when sin came into the world, death came through sin and cursed the relationship that sometimes it will really feel like you're just dying. And the idea of submitting yourself to men who are not respecting you like you should, not saying that you should be abused by them. Women, if you are being verbally or physically abused, know that you should not stay in that situation. Even our government leaders would not say that you should tolerate that. There's something called domestic violence, and men should be put in jail for that. And your elders will help you and fight for you if that is what they are doing. But all men that we submit to will be sinful. All of them will be broken. Therefore, your marriages, your friendships, your family members, you're to come alongside them and underneath them, even when they fail, and be patient with them. Which brings us to our last and final point. The best. Jesus. Do you know that last week we realized that Jesus is like the man who is the head, who lays down his life for the bride. The gospel is pictured by a man who takes responsibility and lays down his life to protect his bride. That's the gospel. That's what Ephesians 5 makes so crystal clear, that marriage is about picturing that. But did you know that women, the gospel is not just pictured by men. The gospel is pictured by your humble submissiveness to make yourself low and come underneath and beside someone. Jesus Christ himself submits to the Father. Read through Philippians chapter 2 and see if this does not have womanhood written all over it. The God of this world did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant and he became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. So that through the death of Jesus Christ, as he came low, as he came under, as he came beside humankind, he served as a helper, a mighty helper. And boy, do all of us, men and women, need help. Have you thought about that recently? You need help. You don't need help like you're in the ocean and it feels like you are drowning and you are just trying to stay above water and what you need is Jesus to come as the life raft to save you. No, no, no. You need more help than that. You have sunk down to the bottom of the ocean. You are dead in your sins and transgression. You have already drowned. Don't think that you're just managing everything okay. No, no. Sinners who have sinned against a holy God are at the bottom. You need a rescue mission. The sort of help that God gives is not that you have a broken leg and what you need is someone to just come alongside of you and be your crutch to help you go. No, you are paralyzed. You're the man who's been paralyzed his whole life sitting on his mat and Jesus comes to him and says, pick up your mat and walk. That's the kind of help we need. If we want to walk 
faithfully in obedience to God. We need help where God changes us and transforms us. Not a little bit of help to put us over the edge. Whole help. Transformational help. You are not a little bit nearsighted and you need perspective or glasses to help with your bad eyesight. You are blind. And God comes through Jesus Christ and brings help to you by opening your blind eyes the same way that he spit into the ground and he he made mud and he put it on the man's eyes. So God wants to open your eyes to your need for his help. One of the greatest problems that all people have is their failure to see how much help that they actually need. The saddest thing I hear as a pastor is when people say, well, I'm doing pretty good, and that my friend, is never going to be good enough. The gospel message starts with terrible, bad news. You need desperate help. You need CPR help. You are not just lost and on the wrong road, and you just need a little help to get back on track. No, you have been heading down the wrong road intentionally, deliberately, in your rebellious sin. You're running from God, and God needs to stop you in your tracks and say, go the other way. Turn around. And through Jesus Christ and his grace, he has put a cross in your tracks so that you do not just see a God who says, turn the other way, but a God who comes down below you and humbles himself and says, turn the other way. I've already gone down this road to the very end and it leads to hell. I have died for you. Turn around. I'm giving you help now. God wants to give you this kind of help. Life-changing, transforming help. The same way that God gave Adam help and provides help for him, so God has provided help for us. Do you notice that God did not just provide a little help? He provided a helper, a person. The gospel message is that God provides a person. It was a person, not assistance, not money, Money's not going to help with your isolation and your loneliness. Success or prestige, worldly goods, the help Adam needed was a person, and so we get a person. And in the same way that Adam was put to sleep and out of his side, the bride had come, so Jesus was put not just to sleep, but to death, ultimate sleep. And from his side, as he was pierced into his side, the last and final blow that he would feel, God provides a helper. Jesus paid it all on the cross. All to him we owe. Through the side of Jesus, the bride was birthed and made. And so in the same way that this chapter of chapter 2 ends, did you notice in chapter 2, verse 23, the way this ends? The man said, no, no, it's not just said. See the indents? Here's here's a better, accurate, not just translation of the word, but of the idea. Then the man sang. This is Hebrew poetry. This is song-like literature. The man saw the woman that God provided, and he sang. He was joyful. At last, finally, saw all the animals, named them all, no helper fit, but at last, finally, a helper has come. If Adam felt that way when he saw Eve, how much more 
should you and I feel when we see God's help through Jesus Christ. At last, at last we have somebody who is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. God made human. God made man. He came beside us and came under us. He took on flesh. Are you going to rejoice as we sing these next few songs and say, at last? I hope you are. Let's pray.